You're listening to the voice of Howard Stern. Hello, you rotten little mudsucker. This is Alice Cooper. Hey, this is Justin from NSYNC. This is Rodney Dangerfield. Uh, hey, baby. Hellers the king. Oh. Hi, this is Jack. Just back up from the border for a short visit. You know what I'm talking about, pal? Hi there, my name is John Teague and welcome to another edition of The Horse's Mouth. You're in The Horse's Mouth and my name is John Teague. Um, We've just had Christmas and New Year's and quietly I'm glad it's behind us. But um, nonetheless, that means we're a step closer into the future and I'm just trying to live in today. What does that even mean? I know what living in today means, but... Um, I don't know what it means why I have such an adversity to Christmas New Year period. I always get a weird feeling. It's just like, it's just so much. There's a lot of expectation and a lot of tension and everyone's a little frantic, a little frantic. Um, So I'm happy to have it behind me, to be honest. But um, yes, today I had the good fortune of speaking to Graham Stockton. Now, Graham Stockton is a conservationist. He's an environmentalist. He's a humanitarian um, and he is an all-round good egg, good soul, and we're very lucky to have him down here on the surf coast and um, and fighting for our beautiful, beautiful environment um, and, and the the native flora and fauna, and um, and all the beautiful animals that go with that. Now, off the back of having a talk to Graham um, today, I, it reminded me of a thought that I had when I was a kid walking home from my grandmother, uh, walking home from primary school to my grandmother's house one one afternoon, and I was uh, weirdly thinking about the world and mm, existentially my part in it, and um, thinking about reincarnation, as you do as a I don't know how old you are in primary school, young. Um, and I was thinking, oh, you know, like, because the Cold War, the Cold War was happening when I was a kid. And I, I, I used to always, I was just, I lived in fear of World War Three, And I just, every every afternoon, <laughs> the bombs were coming, you know, like, fuck. It was um, a funny time. And anyway, I, I used to think about like, you know, because there's all the visuals that went with the World War and, and just like, just destruction of the earth you know and 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 what is that that was frightening as a kid so one day i was walking back from my uh, school to my grandmother's and i was thinking about reincarnation and maybe how many times do we have to come back to earth before we actually fucking destroy it and um and then i was thinking about like that thought never really left it was one of those weird thoughts that just sort of permeates um and stays with and then i think it must have been about 10 years ago i had a crack at writing it down and I've just reread it, and it's just—it's pretty—it's pretty weird. So I'm going to kind of just summarise it a little bit. But it was—it it tied in with what I spoke about with Graham today, and I—and I tried to to share a little bit of it with Graham at the end of the conversation. But um, yeah, I just have a crack now. But like we were talking about the world as a closed circuit, nothing leaves. You know, like the the rain comes down, goes into the seas and the lakes, and is evaporated back up. And when we die, we're made up of mainly water, and we get evaporated back up, and we never leave. Earth is a closed circuit, so we just rain back down. And as one of a teacher told me like years ago, he, he was like, uh, she was like, you are made up of Cleopatra's bathwater. And I always found that pretty profound kind of 
sexy at the same time. And so um, I'm just going to quickly summarize and throw out what I, what I read. So what I wrote, I'm throwing this one out there on population and reincarnation. It came to me a long time ago, one afternoon walking home from my grandparents' house, walking to my grandparents' house after school. Our population is growing exponentially every year, no big secret. Now here comes my little theory. If the world is a closed circuit physically, maybe it's a closed circuit spiritually. What the fuck does that mean? It means that seemingly actually not seemingly. What the fuck? I don't know what I wrote there. Um, what the fuck does that mean? It means that blah, 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 we are killing and wiping out our animals, birds, reptiles, and small creatures, even whole fucking species we're wiping out. Um, shit, maybe there's trees. You could count trees possibly. I think that's what I'm saying there. We can possibly count trees as well because they're living, breathing organisms. Do they have a soul? I don't know. They are living organisms after all. Animals in the jungles, in the oceans, and in around our cities, as man is grows and grows, we are killing more and more of these beautiful animals. The more and more humans appear. Now, I know no one is keeping a running tally of the ratio of death and the newborn of humans and of all the species here on Earth. So maybe, just maybe, uh, uh, all the animals we are killing, their souls have been reincarnated as humans and maybe the imbalance is just ever quietly growing year by year and part of the imbalance seen uh, and is part of the imbalance seen here on Earth today. We have more and more humans taking over exponentially. Maybe it's some sort of cruel trick or lesson that we have to learn as a species until there is no more animals and only humans and computers and machines. And then we will only have ourselves and Mother Earth left to kill. And once our beautiful Mother Earth is dead, is the closed circuit broken forever? And maybe then we'll be free as spirits, souls, to move on into the next phase, dimension, galaxy, solar system... And what did we learn? I don't fucking know. Uh, it's just a thought, so maybe, 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 or maybe not. I'm sure something greater is going on here. The more we move away from the all-human, all-loving, all-caring connection, which unites uh, us to each other, to our earth, and everything on it, we move towards the materialism and self-seeking, which seems to be taking the world by storm at the moment, the greater the fall will be as the society slash human race team. We're all connected. Stay connected. Somewhere in there I got lost. <laughs> yeah, anyway, that's what I wrote. So there you are. Um, look, I know it's a deep one. It's a deep one. Well, get ready to have a listen to Graham. Um, I won't crap on anymore. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Graham. He's a wonderful man. You think this See you on the other side. Wow. Adios. Wait till you hear two hours of crap. A complete and total barfarama. The whole science of climate has been known since the you know mid 1800s, and it was well documented. We, it, all that all that scientific work has been done a long, long time ago, and. Um, back then, way back in those 1800s, they postulated that if we put enough carbon in the atmosphere, it would change the climate. And now that we've been putting all that carbon into the atmosphere for such a long time, it has changed the climate. In 1996, I 
um, went to Guatemala as an ecological advisor to a, um, a diaspora of indigenous and Ladino communities that were living in the Guatemalan rainforest or subtropical rainforest. And they were there as a result of the uh, um, civil war. That what was what year was that? In 1996. Was the war still happening then? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was winding up. So there were um, the guerrilla movement and um, the government were in conversations about how they were going to um, settle the whole issue. Uh, and meanwhile, the community that I was working with were still living in the subtropical rainforest. And I was privileged to live in that rainforest um, for a number of years. And I was also there in 1998, which was documented as the hottest year on record for quite a long period of time. And I saw the same rainforest burning, um, big slabs of it, and the community burning living in incredibly poor um, conditions trying to put the fire out by themselves and that was just ridiculous mismatch of what they could do um, compared to what was happening Mm -hmm. and the same thing was happening right down through the amazon and at that time all the indonesian forests were on fire as well partly as a result of willful burning for um, putting in, um, you know, plantations for, um, uh, what is it? Bananas? No, no, plantations for um, palm oil. Okay, yeah, yeah. And all the smoke was drifting across to other um, nation states, um, Malaysia in particular, and I thought, okay, this is the point where humanity will act. We actually will get it now. But they didn't. And the penny dropped for me well why you know why 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 isn't this happening when i got home um in 2007 i thought well i can say all i want about the problem with climate change but it seems to me that it's important that we act locally that old adage about you can't solve the world's global um, climate change, but you can do what you you can to take part locally. Yeah, lead by example. Yeah. yeah. So we started SCAG and the Surf Coast Energy Group, and once again... How um, long ago was that? 2007, we started that. Okay, yeah. And um, once again, um, there were so many hurdles that were put in, uh, in front of us to stop any action taking place. And... Once again, the question arises, well, why? Why are we doing all this? Can I chime in? Yeah. (laughs) Well, if you look from 2007 to now, it's just commerce. And that you were going to get in the road of people making money, Graham. Um, Yeah, well, that's the the, the whole problem is that the whole global economy is predicated on the notion of infinite growth. And that's a big problem. And when you actually look at uh, what's happened, I started reading and I'm starting to think, because I'm not an economist, what is going on here? And so the very first book that I ever um, 
got that was almost a Bible to me has been Herman Daly's Ecological Economics. And Herman Daly happened to be the former chief economist of the World Bank. So he's not just some newbie on, t- on the... On Are you serious? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, he's right. Yeah. He, so, so this guy really does know what he's talking about. And I started to read uh, that book and I just found that all the things that I'd kind of thought um, but couldn't articulate, they were there in sentences right in front of me. And it was him that alerted me to the difference between the global economic system and um, the the laws of nature. And what you need to understand, and what what he alerted me to was the first and second law of thermodynamics, which is what everyone should actually have an understanding of. So so the first law of of thermodynamics is that um, nothing is created. You can't create anything out of... You can't create something out of nothing and you can't create nothing out of something. So <laughs> That just hurt my head. Yeah. So that, that, uh, and the, but the second law yeah. will actually help explain that and that's the law of... Um, second law of thermodynamics which is about entropy. And entropy is about... Um, uh, low entropy is about ordered, useful energy and stuff. And when it's used, it moves to high entropy, which is unusable, unordered kind of chaos. And you can see that best through fossil fuels. So we live in on planet Earth, which is a closed system. Mm-hmm. And in that closed system, all the matter and energy that ever existed... Is, is never going to increase, it's never going to decrease, it's always going to be what it is. And what happens with entropy is that, like with fossil fuels, we find something that's got um, good order and usable energy, so it's low entropy. We use that energy in, 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 in say, oil or coal. We generate a lot of energy from it, and then we also convert that into um, waste, waste streams. So those waste streams end up as things like um, climate change, like carbon emissions. And now, can I just stop for one second? I'm with you. <laughs> yeah, but good. I'm gonna, I'm gonna just for argument's sake say I was looking at an argument on Facebook the other day. Voyeuristically, I didn't chime in. Yeah, never dare. Yeah, <laughs> but someone said. If you look at the weather patterns from a hundred years ago, they they were pretty similar. Now, I'm with you. I think that there's something going on because the water temperature. I mean, fuck, it's undeniable. I mean, that's just. But but is it secular with or without us? Um, there's definitely a, a huge human um, fingerprint on climate change. That's undeniable. Yeah, and. Um, it shows up in so many different areas, whether it's geology, whether it's atmospheric science, whether it's um, uh, ecosystems changing, whether it's species moving into different areas, whether it's um, uh, checking um, ice uh, uh, ice packs from down in the Antarctic. Um, all sorts of sciences are able to demonstrate that um, the climate is changing and that the human race is 
has got its fingers all over it. So what 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 I was trying to get to before yeah. was that in our in in our global economy we like to think it, think of it as circular supply and demand mm-hmm. okay but global economics seeks to explain something really well and then pretend that it explains everything really well and whilst the global economy is circular supply and demand it requires throughput and throughput are all those fossil fuel energies um, and all those other things that were used to drive the economy. And they're actually not counted in global economics. We could have a global economy. um, In fact, we have a global economy that pretty much ignores the fact that we're on a living planet. (laughs) What about the subsidised water? Like it doesn't show up in equation for where you pay for your meat what you pay for most things because the government has to offset the cost of that. Is, that, is this right? Yeah, well, that, these are... these are. Um, Otherwise, it'd be unaffordable. Yeah, well, we, we treat the planet pretty much as um, something that can be used as a commodity to either dig up or use, but we don't actually treat it as a living planet and, and a big ecosystem. And people could say that... What a lot of baloney, except that all the big living planet indicators are now telling us very clearly that what we're doing is 100% unsustainable. And when you look at all those things, uh, whether it's the rainforest um, dying, uh, whether it's the fact that we, in order to promote infinite growth, we keep chopping down um, incredibly important areas of rain, rainforest, orangutans uh, losing their habitat, um, waste streams in the ocean, plastic, uh, climate change, biodiversity, mass extinction. They're all living planet, planet indicators of how well we're, we're, we're managing our planet. And clearly, um, it can't go on doing what we're doing there will be um, a point at which we collapse, and can I ask you how long do you think till that? Because I, I have a feeling that it's sooner than later. But yeah, well, um, there was a really important book written back in the nineteen seventies called "The Limits to Growth." It's world famous, and in that book, they used very, you know, compared to now, very primitive modelling to say that. They weren't trying to predict anything, but they, were, they, they ran all their models and they were saying um, by mid-century, you know, of the 20, you know, in, in the 21st century, by 2050, we were going to be in big trouble. Mm-hmm. And they're pretty much uh, right on track. The CSIRO did a review of their book and everything that they said is actually, you know, true so um i don't pretend to be uh one that's leading this conversation i'm just reading all the literature and the literature clearly is telling us um not only what the problems are but what we need to do to 
to solve it. And what I, what I've what I've been doing is trying to understand well why is it that the global economy doesn't work like you know what why why do they refuse to actually um, do something about climate change and it's because we've got an industrial society that's premised on um, very cheap fuel and it comes from fossil fuels and it's uh, energy dense so one barrel of oil for instance is the equivalent of 25,000 man labor hours. So we've never had anything like that in all of history, but since the mid 1800s, all of a sudden, we found this magic little piece of, of you know dynamo and we've fully exploited it. And now our whole global economy is 100% reliant on that cheap energy addicted addicted to it and everything we do from before we wake up to you know after we go to bed has oil um, in it Uh, and we haven't actually got an easy solution for um, making the transition to something else well you look at people like elon musk Mm-hmm. And the push for electric, you know, and I did read the BBC a little while ago that China was claiming they wanted to be petrol and diesel free by the year, blah, blah, blah. So there's a swing. But do you think is that an answer? No, it's it's um, it's pretending to be the answer that it can't possibly be. Because in this new age that we're going to move into, if we manage to avoid collapse... We just won't have the same energy-dense opportunity that we've had in the past. And um, we've also got a carbon um, constraint now that we can't avoid. So to stay under two degrees um, uh, climate change means we've got to decarbonise our whole economy, which is a big problem. And it, it... the, the problem is we know um, in terms of mathematics what the remaining budget is and the remaining budget is quickly diminishing. And on Of the earth? You mean on an earth budget or a government budget? Like the, how much we can take from the earth, that budget, or the budget that the government's got? No, no. It's it's what the earth yeah, yeah. Can, can actually support. Yes. So to stay under two degrees... Uh, mathematically, they, they, it's something like a thousand gigatons of carbon, which sounds like maybe a lot, um, but it, it's not. We're we're motoring through it, and if we look at what we actually need to do to get under that two degrees and make the transition, it's it's kind of like working to a war footing on steroids. It's an enormous task ahead of us. And even if we get to uh, zero carbon emissions, we then have to withdraw a whole lot of carbon out of the atmosphere with technology that we don't even have. And yet, we're still doubling down on this idea of growth. I did, sorry, this is something that like, and I feel 
bad <laughs> for my friends that have kids and uh you know that's because you know that is the model that we should be having children and it's a beautiful model you know that's the the, the house and the backyard and the family and that's what we were, what's we're sold that idea since we were children so i'm not blaming anyone or anything but it blows my brain as well that yeah, well, we are exponentially growing 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 and there's less and less land and all the resources on the earth are coming smaller and smaller and smaller i saw a thing the other day that cape town last year came within one day of mm. having no water mm. none for that entire city mm. and that they also when they spoke about that they said how many other big cities have come quite close and it hasn't really come on the radar because they're trying to keep that stuff down but yeah well they're, they're good examples of us uh reaching the limits to growth and i think what all of us need to understand um, is really to start be having that conversation. What are the limits to growth? And I worry also about what future generations are going to inherit. And at the at the moment, at the top of the mast, this is how I like to think of it. At the top of the masthead, we have growth, and any government any economist that is worth anything will just spruik to um, you know till the end of days that they're going to um, provide a, 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 an economy that's growing at what you know two percent per annum or whatever but when I see that the global economy has grown by two three or four percent per annum I actually go back to that idea of throughput and what it means is that some part of the planet's ecosystems has been lost in order for us to drive that growth. So just uh, quickly, in 1997, some people did some work on um, our demands on the planet. And whilst nature's ecosystems had um, been lost at about, they'd lost about 33%, of the planet's ecosystems. At the same time, um, we had it increased our demands on the planet by another 50%. That's in 1997. So um, all that just keeps pointing to not sustainable. It's not possible. And um, it was uh, Herman Daly that actually made me understand that, that I get back to that first and second law of thermodynamics. We can't make nothing out of something or something out of nothing. You actually need materials in order to drive the economy. And if the, the economy is pretending to be something that can be infinite growth, well, that growth has to come from something. And the planet being a finite planet has to provide those resources and at the moment, because we want to do infinite growth, we're actually using the renewable resources at non-renewable rates, like fish, like forests, and the non-renewable resources we're running down. So stuff like oil, which was cheap and abundant in the 1900s and early 20th century, is now not, no longer cheap and abundant. 
And we, we haven't moved to fracking just because it's a good idea. It's because we've used up the lowest hanging fruit, which was all those oil fields in Texas and everywhere else. All of them are pretty much gone. And in order to sustain our reliance on um, those fossil fuels, we're now moving into fracking and, and shale uh, economies and tar sands to extract those harder-to-get oil uh, resources. And there's an important equation called um, energy invested over energy return. And at some point along the pathway the energy invested to get that very hard oil is going to be more than the energy that you get back. And we're actually kind of at that point now. And so then you go, okay, let's, and this is what, you know, is kind of happening now, let's move to electric vehicles, but they also also require um, finite resources to sustain them, like lithium, etc., and whilst the car battery uh, for energy is, is it's a great idea and, you know, low carbon emissions, all the metal around it um, and all the roads and all the other infrastructure, car parking and all that sort of stuff is still an energy intensive um, kind of uh, infrastructure, mm. which means you need to use fossil fuels to build those things. Now, can I just go off track here for one second? Yeah. It's been planned. It's come up twice for me now. I've got to get it out. Yeah. So a couple of years ago, a year and a half ago, they came up with a thing that was a, con- a-, a continuum. Do you know about this? It had a name and I've forgotten it. Um, but once you start it, it's... Uh, That's perpetual motion. Yeah. Yeah, perpetual mm-hmm. motion is... Um, it's a myth. But didn't they get it? Didn't they no. um, build one and it worked? No. 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 Okay, so I'm going If to... it did, then it would solve a lot of our this problems. Is where, why can't we figure this one out? Isn't it that's what... Like, I'm not sure about you, but I do believe that we're not the only ones here in the universe. And if they are flying across galaxies, they must be using perpetual motion. Well, the first, the first premise there is that they exist and that they are flying um, across galaxies... We don't know that. Oh, I believe it. But yeah, but it, it, we can't. You, you can't. Um, you can't actually prove or disprove it. Right. So all we can act on is something that's solid and 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 provable. Okay. Yeah. 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 All right. And so that well, yeah, <laughs> we, we, that's the only thing that we can work on. That's why science is what it is, and that's why the law of thermodynamics, for instance, yeah. as far as we know, it's proven. And until another theory comes along that says, oh, hang on, you got it wrong, Albert Einstein, then um, that's the law that we have. You know, we know that that, you know, every, everything tells us mathematically that that's, that's how it is. Uh, unfortunately, our global economy tries to defy physics. It doesn't actually work to the law of physics. And what kind of a crazy system is that? Well, can I can I gonna say something again? Now, yeah, I don't know what generation that you put yourself into here, and I'm not blaming anyone. But it seems to me that the name baby boomers keeps coming up, and that they're still in control, and we're still running off an old system, which was working for some time, and is now longer serving us. Does this seem fair? 
Well, um, I would probably say that at least for the first 10, 20, 30,000 years, it took, uh, well, it took that long to go, for, say, from 1 million people to 1 billion people. So um, the first billion ever recorded on planet Earth was in 1803. 1803 this was the first billion? First billion. That's a lot of people back then. Yeah. Well, yeah, it took us until then to get to 1 billion people. The second billion was in 1937. Okay. So that's 100 years, yeah. just over. The third billion was in 1961 so or 1960. Exponentially, we're just mushrooming. And, and, and then from there, we've added another, um, what's that, 4.5 billion people. So to go from 6 to 7 billion people took 12 years. But the first billion took 10,000 years. So, and, and, and all of that came particularly after the Industrial Revolution. Mm. So before the Industrial Revolution, what they did to provide all that um, energy-intense uh, requirement was use slaves. So um, they, they, they imported slaves to the United States um, and, you know, across all, all the colonialism that happened, it was all about slave labour to drive the economy. The Egyptians were big on it as well, I believe. That's it, yeah. yeah. Um, but then when we discovered uh, fossil fuels, it changed everything. And whereas 97% of the planet were um, agrarian and, you know, working out in the fields, after the Industrial Revolution, it freed up most people to step outside of that and work in other um, markets. And so now it's kind of the complete inverse. We've only got about 3% people working in, you know, agricultural industry and the rest of us are doing other things. And um, what happened, especially from, say, the 1930s, with the Depression, and then particularly after World War II, the United States came out as the big powerhouse of um, the global economy. And it rewrote the rules for how to do things. Um, and what it did was actually um, drive this whole notion of growth into... Um, its extreme uh, limits, let's say, into hyperdrive. It's probably a better way to put it. And those 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 economists became the high priests of everything, and they were able to explain or you know pretend that they could explain everything by you know this 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 idea of um, growth and economy, and. For a long, long time, it's worked because way back in 1945, there were only about, say, two and a half billion people. So we're still talking pretty much about an empty planet. Mm. So resource rich, um, no problems really with carbon in the atmosphere. We could do all that stuff. Clean beaches. Clean beaches, plastic, you know, wasn't really invented then. Um, all that kind of stuff made sense. And it, it was it was able to drive all this growth 
and it was able to dictate the terms to all the other countries. So even places like um, Russia, who are under a different system of communism, their um, holy grail was still growth. And communism fell apart in the 1980s, not because it wasn't wanting growth, but because it was an inefficient system. And the inefficiencies in its system made it fall over. Now, and the inefficiencies be greed? Uh, the inefficiencies were that their economy was built on engineers. And once again, um, the environment, the global economy, or sorry, the global environment, weren't counted into um, pressing the idea of growth. And uh, they were quite happy to destroy their environment in order to achieve growth. And they did. Um, but in the West, we took the we took the very um, I guess we took the notion that our um, our idea of capitalism was far superior and we could point to their system and say they got it wrong you should have followed us but we never actually asked the question are both systems flawed and is our system, even though it's more efficient, is that going to fall over too at some stage? And if you look at how we're managing the global um, environment at the moment, it's inevitable but that it's e going to fall over. Every society and model has failed, has it not, at some point? Uh, the, and, and I guess there are some people, um, Jared Diamond, for instance, has looked at a lot of those places a lot, lot of those different cultures and looked at the ones that survived and thrived and looked at the ones that fell over and the ones that um, did fall over were the ones that um, weren't sustainable, weren't resilient and were able to use their ingeniousness to overcome problems but then kept growing and growing and growing and sooner or later when... Um, things changed, whatever they may have been, they'd stretched the system so far like a rubber band, stretched it out so far that they couldn't actually overcome those environmental problems. So the, the Mayan um, uh, um, cultures, you know, the Aztecs, all that kind of stuff, they're a good example of that, but there are others right around the whole world. Mm. Um, so I think my step-grandmother was telling me about a book a while ago called The Seventh Extinction or something. Have you heard of that one? Um, I haven't, but we've had six. This is, We're in the middle of the sixth mass extinction at the moment. So so is this that... So I haven't read the book, so... Um, is it that, that we've grown like this before as a human species to the point where we've come down to tiny, minute numbers and then rebuilt again? Is this is that the extension, or is that are we talking like the dinosaurs was one? And do you, do you know what I mean? Well, th th there's as I say, there's been five other mass extinctions on planet Earth for various reasons, and this is the only one to be caused by um, a higher order species, namely humans. So we're between 100 and 1,000 times the normal background rate of extinction loss. Um, it tells us a lot about our stewardship of the planet. And uh, why is it 
that we're so willing to let nature go in order for us to keep growing? So I ask this kind of fundamental question. If we want to continue to grow, how many more species are we willing to forego in order that we, us human beings, can, can continue to grow? Should we lose another 10%, let's say, or should we lose another 20% or 50%? Even if we lose 100% of all other things on life on Earth, we're going to have to come to grips with the fact that it's a finite planet. So why not make the change now while we've still got some inventory to play with? It's just a no-brainer. And but, 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 I mean, I get it. I, I, like for some reason I, I know there's a lot of people out there that be just like uh, <laughs> you know don't really want to change their ways and how do you get that message across to somebody like, like I, I just get lost when I look at the dozers mm. and the diggers and the road work and just everything that's happening all the time now everywhere. yeah so so it, I do too and um, in my reading, what I've always wanted to do is understand what the problem is. And I feel like I'm getting closer and closer to understanding what that, what that problem is. And it's about this whole notion of infinite growth and consumerism to feed the global economy. It's just commerce. So, yeah, it's this whole notion of, of growth. And we are actually now the pawns to feed the economy so the we're working for the economy the economy's not working for us and probably at the very start of this interview i should have introduced a guy called richard heinberg he's a um hails from the post carbon institute in the united states and he's probably been instrumental in helping me understand well where do i put my energy in all this because like you you just feel totally overwhelmed and uh, absolutely not knowing which way to step um, because everywhere seems to be um, a rear guard action. Just, you know, uh, there's a hot spot there. Quick, let's all rush over there and try to put the flames out. There's another hot spot over there. You know, orangutans are dying. Let's go over there and try and stop that. And whilst we continue to have that... Um, reaction we're, we're not actually getting to the root cause so i actually thought okay climate change is the the base problem we need to solve that but actually it's not it's it's the global economy and this whole idea of growth it's which is why we've never addressed climate change which is actually the driver of all of all these problems and the the historical context that i kind of mentioned before um gives some reasons as to and Richard Heinberg was, you know, helped me understand that why it is, why why it is where we're at at the moment in this twenty first century. But then he goes on to actually give me some really great ideas, and 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 people can actually find that out pretty easily through the Post Carbon Institute just by going online and looking up Richard Heinberg about what where to put your energy, what to do, and. As it turns out, in terms of leverage points, the best place to put your energy is at, in your own local community. If, if you actually try to stretch up into the next um, 
uh, lever of of um, of change, which is maybe state government or federal government. I don't have the potential leverage to actually make that change. Conversely, when I am talking to people in my own community and, and having interviews like this, there's an opportunity to actually have a conversation with people and people can see firsthand um, what the problems are and vicariously they feel like something's not right here. What What's actually going on is not correct and um, there's there's problems here but they can't name it and actually I feel like I've got enough... Um, I've got enough resources at hand now and enough knowledge to, to understand that where we need to put our energy is at the local level and we need to think about things not in terms of growth being at the top of the masthead but equity, equity for nature, equity for future generations and equity for people that are... Um, economically less well off than ourselves mm. and if we actually did that we would actually do things vastly differently to what we're doing them now and just as i can't change um, climate change i can actually play a part locally and just as i can't which, change which you do greatly uh well uh, we do um the best we can and just as I can't change the whole global economy, I can try and um, create a conversation about why the global economy, in, in, in how we can address those global issues at a local level, let's say. So, Can I just say, but in though, can yeah? I say, like, for me, I think Brexit's a good thing because I feel this is the pessimist in me that anything that snaps something against the globalization and the, that if the globalization and that sounds like uh, the more power those multinational companies have to just be able to go wherever they want they're less accountable so by Brexit snapping away from that and everyone goes it's just terrible it's just terrible well no I, I feel like it's, it's, it's a win for local to bring things back to a local level yeah and then we can start acting as a community again globalization i don't think so for me just as an abstract idea i don't think a great thing yeah well i think um you've hit on something important there and um as with anything uh nothing is absolute so there are some good things about um, globalisation, but there's an awful lot, which you've hinted at with the Brexit um, uh, thing coming up, that there's also a lot of, a lot of serious problems with uh, this whole notion of globalisation. And uh, Trump is also probably another good indicator, like he's a disruptor. And that disruption is probably a good thing. Like if, if, if we don't fall into... Um, incredibly bad behaviour through war and stuff like that. It's actually probably a, a good thing that, that, that he's there at the moment because it's bringing to attention things that we actually weren't willing to look at before. And in a way, it's uniting a lot of people. So I see that as um, potentially useful at, at this time. Um, I think this whole notion of infinite growth 
is something that we can address at a local level. So what, what I've been trying to get people to understand in terms of Torquay and, and growth is, okay, what is our identity here in Torquay? We're, we see ourselves as a coastal village um, that supports, you know, a lot of industry in, in, with tourism. Um, we see ourselves as something apart from Geelong. But now, because uh, of, of all the development that's happened just in the last decade, if we repeat that decade again, we'll have lost our identity. And have so you, that's Have a, you been to Orange County? No, no. It's a continuation of yeah. Los Angeles all the way yeah. down that was called Orange County once because of the orange fields. Yeah, okay. They're not there anymore. Yeah. It's just houses. Yeah. So they've, they've actually already committed um, the mistake that we don't want to. So the other question I ask our, our community is, how much do we value that rural interspace between here and um, the developments just the other side of Mount Tanead. And if we do um, value that rural interface, then we actually need to make some decisions about what the limits are to growth. And it's not only about us, it's also about nature. So what are the rights of nature to coexist on planet Earth with human beings? especially given the, this moment in time where we are in what um, scientists are describing as the sixth mass extinction on planet Earth. What space should we be actually allocating to them to survive? And I see things like um, with Armstrong Creek, for instance, Elaine Carbines, the head of G21, said, I've created a new reserve. Well, she didn't create that reserve. That reserve was already there. What she did was surround it with urbanisation, which put way more pressure on that reserve. Because the planet's not expanding at 2% per annum like we are. Um, so what, what, what's there is what's there. And as we grow, comes a whole new level of pressures. And I, I keep going back to that thing about throughput. Um, with... Uh, and, and that's something that can be mathematically worked out. Um, in, an, in a study of uh, uh, Americans who are leading on um, uh, growth, economic growth and um, uh, population growth and consumption, um, each American, it's been worked out over the course of a year, uh, creates 455,000 tonnes of waste. So that's, sorry, sorry, can you say that again? So each, each American yeah. um, creates 455,000 tonnes of waste per annum. So, so that's... That the, is... Yeah, it's enormous. So um, what, what, that, what that means is we, we go back to this idea of a circular economy, but then all the resources that are used to drive it, and it's simply not sustainable for us to keep doing that and why are we so short-sighted is it just money is money people just blinded by money well it's it's um what what the economy has done for us 
for the last, let's say, 150, 200 years is create a, um, uh, a, temporary, um, a temporary solution that we think is permanent. The, the temporary solution is um, cheap energy, uh, everyone has a house, everyone has two cars, we can buy, 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 um, all this stuff. And you know, I went to the op shop the other day and they weren't taking any more clothes. Yeah. Well, that, that, that's because, uh, partly because there's just, they're being overrun with stuff. That's right. Like yeah. Just because we're consuming at a rate of new, new, new. Yeah. This was last year's out, out, out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so once again, if we're going to pitch positive change, the best leverage point is here in our own local community and it's it, it's the questions that we ask ourselves I, and i keep i keep repeating this what yeah. are what are the sensible limits to growth above and beyond which that economic growth doesn't make any sense anymore okay so then let, let me just say this i know so many people who have a young have family and are so struggling to make ends meet yeah and get their kids the right education and yeah do be the best parent that they can yeah and then if you go and say something to them about this it seems that people are so saturated with you know trying to to keep up they don't you know it's like i feel like a lot of a lot of people are so stuck just trying to keep up at the moment yeah. that this is like a secondary, you know, it's like I'm fucking, I'm just, I'm struggling to pay bills. I'm trying yeah. to fucking look after them. My kids are fucking off the rails. I can't think about the fucking, Yeah, know? Yeah. Well, it's, it's where I get back to this whole idea of equity and in ecological economics, what it's saying is that they by and large agree with, the, the you know most of what um, global economy does okay it's done a lot of good things but what they don't absolutely agree with was the fact that infinite growth is possible like it, it totally isn't it's just because of that first and second law of thermodynamics and entropy and and because we live on a closed system you know planet earth yeah i used to have so, a teacher that used to say you are made up of cleopatra's bathwater I yeah, loved it. yeah, 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 and and that's very true, um, and so it, it gets to this whole idea of what do we do? So, in ecological economics, um, we replace growth with optimal scale, okay, and that 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 that's you know that's another word for talking about limits to growth, mm. let's say, but also um, replacing all this idea of consumerism and level jumping with, a, with another um, uh, replacement, which is equity, and actually trying to think about our, our, our place on this planet in terms of equitable distribution of, um, of goods and services. And um, as I said, thinking about nature, uh, what's their rights, and thinking about future generations. So... It's, we are almost uniquely placed in, on planet Earth at the moment 
to be one of the first generations that are going to hand over a planet for the very first time in worse condition than our predecessors. And is that what we actually want to do? I think I'm sure all of us want to put, you know, to leave a legacy, a positive legacy. And we're not actually doing that at the moment. So, um, but we are being sold through media, magazines, uh, social you know, social media. It's, we're bombarded from uh, uh, what's lack of a better word. You only live once, you know. Yeah. Like, let's fucking go down in flames, you know. There's that that's ego driven kind yeah. of like fuck yeah, you know. That, there's yeah. a lot of that around, and yeah. it's kind of scary. Yeah. Well, um, I always remember John. Fuck yeah, fuck you. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> Well, I always remember John F. Kennedy's speech, um, which was asked not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And that political emphasis has totally gone out the window. It's all about me and it's all about what, um, you know, what, what, it, what when you do your economic speech and you're spruiking as a candidate, what am I going to get out of it? Um, and that's an unfortunate turn. Uh, it, it it actually is not going to get us to where we need to be. And once again, Richard Heinberg explains where we're at in terms of an E4 crisis. E4. E4. So it's um, ecology, economy, um, equity, and the fourth thing is ecology, economy, equity and energy yeah so they are the four things that we're going to have to confront uh, as we go forward and whilst so, so i would say uh, all, all those things about your you know your friends that are struggling and stuff they're absolutely things that we need to address and um you see that uh with um, economic policy at the moment like negative gearing for instance Where's the equity for younger generations in negative gearing? It's not there. Um, in going forward, uh, our whole economy is about transitioning to robotics and IT, etc. But then at the same time, we've got this conundrum of creating growth, like you know. Um, mm -hmm. So how does that how does that work? Well, it doesn't. It, it it actually means that more and more people are becoming um, redundant. Redundant, yeah, totally. So we need to think about things in a totally different way. All those um, uh, IT innovations and you know robotics and stuff like that—they were always touted as things to save us time and make life easier for us, but now they're making us redundant. And so well, we're also consumed by them. Yeah. Like yes, yeah. Well, with your phones and stuff like that. So wh why not actually change the system to make those things work for us? And people, um, you know, much smarter people than me are, are talking about universal wage, for instance. Jeremy Rifkin, um, who has done a lot of work uh, called the Third Industrial Revolution, for instance, talks about um, universal wage. So why not think about 
um, how we're actually going to move not just through the 21st century but the 22nd and 23rd and and thereafter. I mean, Aboriginal people lived on on the Australian continent for 60 to 80,000 years as far as we know. I love that you brought that up because I was going to yeah. chime it in and it's quite poignant. It's, just, it's uh, what do we call it, Australia Day? Yes, yeah, <laughs> well, yeah. Um, but they... I, I just love that they lived here without leaving, you know, so much as a few pictures on the walls of the caves we, and, and in harmony with nature for that long. Yeah. Yeah. So that was um, sustainability um, ad infinitum, pretty much. Like they made probably some big mistakes when they first came, just like we are. But they have, through time, worked through that. And, I, you know, in my, I've been reading a book by Bill Gamage. Um, I think it's called the, 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 the Greatest Estate, which is, you know, the Australian continent. And how Aboriginal people managed the Australian continent um, in terms of its sustainability. And there's, they've got plenty of early um, recordings of explorers stuff. Uh, going out into the bush and being able to catch a fish within minutes of arriving at some, you know, river or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a place of Well, you know the Edward abundance. River, right, in New South Wales, on the bo- up just above the border, I've been up there, my stepdad's from up that way, and there's the, the Edward River that tells me that when he was young, used to be clear. Yeah. You could see through it. Yeah. And I don't know if you've been up that way, but and I think the same with the Murray. It, they're brown. Yeah. You can't see a foot in front of you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And there's another big fish kill today. Well, like all, all the things that are happening globally, like let's just look at, say, um, we mentioned the fish kill, but um, coral reefs, for instance. So we know that they are going to go out backwards and we're at about 1.2 degrees climate change. And... The carbon emissions, along with um, acidification of the oceans, are pretty much going to cause their extinction by, you know, uh, the mid-2030s. And we think of those coral reefs as novices, novel entities almost, but we don't actually perceive them as part of the grand living planet interconnected ecosystem which support um you know a rookery for lots a nursery for lots of fish to you know start life out in the mangroves um as uh spaces that support pelagic uh, animals like whales and sharks that move all around the continent you know or sorry all around the planet um seabirds for instance which you know fly vast different uh, areas of of the planet and spend some of their time in the tropics and and then move to other parts. Um, well, the connectivity of everything. I, I was. Do you know? You know Rudolf Steiner, obviously. Yeah. I was in Switzerland a while ago at the Gottianum where he was his legacy, mm-hmm. and uh, there was a botanist there who was studying botany under his teachings. Yeah. And he showed me. He was like, "Look at this plant. Tell me what you see." Blah blah blah. And I looked at the leaves, and he goes, "Well, tell me about these leaves." 
I was like, there's leaves. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And he goes, how do you think that these are growing? And I'm like, well, they're just growing out of the ground. And he was like, no, no, no. How do you look at it like this? And he showed me on every leaf where it was on the stem as it came off and how it was replicating and talking to uh, the, the solar system and how each leaf represented a different uh, planet or star in its, as it turned, it turned like that and came up. But it melted my brain Yeah, to think that the, the, the plants and everything here is actually connected and talking. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, plants communicate much more than people understand, you know, particularly through um, their root systems. And this, the soil is just full of fungi and nematodes and um bacteria and you know have you heard the thing recently where they're helping each other yeah sending minerals to different trees that are yeah lacking and yeah yeah um we, we know so little about life on earth um still and even now in in australia botanists are saying that there's still a lot of plants that we don't know even now um and then you get to the oceans where you know we've probably recorded you know, less than 10% of what's actually there. Um, yeah, so I guess all that, all that, um, s- s- that knowledge uh, that we still need to understand how, you know, how the planet works, we could be spending so much um, time and on, on all that kind of stuff. Um, and getting better acquainted with nature because that's probably one of the key things that we really have lost uh, moving into this uh, industrial society, our connection to nature. Uh, And I think, because I've got a degree in horticulture and my business is West Coast Indigenous Nursery, so I've been um, very... um, uh, precise in the kind of horticulture that I do it's kind of ecological horticulture working with the local flora of the Ballerine and Torquay region and trying to um, put that back as best as I can to create better habitat Mm -hmm. and uh, what I always try to say to anyone uh, when they're putting their you know their garden plants in is that the, the first thing you can you, you, you could buy that would be really helpful would be a bird book just to get to know what the different life forms are in your neighborhood um, it's something that for 99.9 percent of all human history uh, our human ancestors were intimately um, uh, acquainted with and we've only lost it just in that last little bit um, and I guess I've been lucky enough to um, be involved in that field for over 30 years now and I feel like the work that I do with our community has been incredibly useful not just for creating social bonds and, and friendships but also getting to understand nature in my own backyard not just the plants but the birds and the animals and um, I, I see, like, you know, if we go forward to Spring Creek, where there was a big battle for Spring Creek in our community, 
Spring Creek is probably a, a, um, a key uh, um, opportunity for our community um, to to start a conversation about where to from here. Mm-hmm. So I see Spring Creek as part of an important ecosystem that supports one of the last remaining populations of ballerine yellow gum. Ballerine yellow gum happens to be an endemic species, so it, it only occurs on in planet Earth, on the Ballerine Peninsula and as far southwest as Torquay. And the biggest population of it is probably in Spring Creek. So, and Bellarine yellow gum flowers in the wintertime when not a lot of other things are flowering. So it supports a whole range of birds and, 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 and insects, you know, lots of other invertebrates um, that otherwise wouldn't have that um, opportunity to access food. So it's, it's really an important keynote spe- or keystone species. So then I think about, okay, if, if we're going to um, think about Spring Creek and uh, nature, you know, equity, rights of nature, how do we actually think about that as also supporting our local economy? And as it turns out, if we think about it just even a little bit, the Great Ocean Road runs parallel to the whole of Spring Creek, and it's a key point of uh, international and national tourism what would happen if we started to think about spring creek as not just an opportunity to provide um, transport alternative transport links let's say bicycles and pedestrian access paths from janjak belbray through to torquay that were safe and separated from roads uh, for our local community but also as an opportunity for interstate tourists and um, international tourists to come to Torquay where kangaroos are um, in the valley and in good numbers. And so the kangaroos aren't just um, an environmental uh, asset, they're a key economic asset because people from China don't come here to see wall-to-wall housing. Mm Mm-hmm. They come here to see nature. We know that. If we started to develop Spring Creek as this key economic asset and we started to think about, okay, what are the, what are the accommodation opportunities for those people that are coming from those places? Have we got the right accommodation opportunities? Can we support that kind of tourism? And so we start to build our own local economy in a way that actually provides that justice and equity across the key things that we need to change. And we then start to become a microcosm of change, positive change, in um, a global economy that other local um, communities can point to and go, you know what? Those, those people in Torquay, they actually are onto something. They actually thought about the limits to growth. They thought about how they keep their own local economy sustainable and resilient and retain their identity. Now, they can didn't, I just ask this quickly? Yeah. 
because I believe that the state government marked us as a growth node. Yes. Now, how does that help? It doesn't help at no. all. <laughs> and so the, the, the fight for Spring Creek began um, 11 years ago, okay? Yeah. Uh, our community came out very strongly and said to the state government, there's no way we're going to allow you to develop Spring Creek. And um, we were our response was immediate and strong. So then we had a change of government. It was um, Justin Madden mm. who first uh, first sprung the the whole growth of Spring Creek on us. And Torquay, Torquay was designated as a growth node from right back in the 1980s, okay? Really? Yeah. Oh. But uh, since then, everything's changed. We've done this massive development in Armstrong Creek, and that's going to add another 70,000 people to the border of um, the surf coast. And all those people are going to come here for um, using infrastructure and um you know livability and all that sort of stuff they just will they'll just come to our beaches so torquay has effectively gone from a population of say twelve thousand in 2006 to in say 2040 a population of over a hundred thousand because we're going to be taken in armstrong creek so we can't do anything about that because that's actually already happened but what we're getting back to this whole thing about Torquay is a growth node in Spring Creek. Then we had uh, Matthew Guy came in and stepped in and our local council said, okay, we're going to put the border at Duffields Road. We're not going to develop Spring Creek. And Matthew Guy came in and stepped in and said, no, no, you're not. Um, I'm going to allow development one kilometre past Duffields Road. And so once again, the community had to go back to um, the drawing board and argue its case and we've been through two independent planning panels um uh, and i haven't got the chronology on all this right but you know the fight for spring creek has not stopped in 11 years so where are we at with it right now so importantly where we're at now uh, or where we were in 2018 Mm. a group of people got together called the greater torquay alliance Mm. and as you know damien cole was very brave and um, a young gun to stand up and put his head above the parapet and go, you know what, I'm going to run as an independent candidate. And he's, and with the Greater Torquay Alliance, we decided to put together four key principles upon which we would stand. And we took those four principles to both parties, to both major parties, and said, you know what, we're running an independent candidate. The party that listens to us best is the party that will get our preferences. Mm -hmm. So for 11 years, we were not listened to. Mm -hmm. When Damien ran, God bless him, he put his heart and soul into that campaign. So he did, yeah. Yeah, and he did make the difference. He, He did make the change that has now given us a a, a good, strong foothold to build a whole new sustainable and resilient community. So the platform platform was 
to remove Torquay as a growth node. It was to get an impact study on the social, ecological and environmental and economic uh, impacts that, um, you know, Armstrong Creek and all that other uh, growth has that's been foisted on Torquay, what, what impacts they're going to bring. Um, it's been to get permanent town boundaries for Torquay and Belbray and Janjak. Uh, and um, what it's meant... And then also to get um, Spring Creek, uh, not, not, no development west of Duffields Road for Spring Creek. So all of a sudden, um, what it now means is that instead of our boundaries being permeable, in which legislation, state legislation requires uh, local government to, um, to, re- to make available um, 15 years uh, worth of land for extra development, we've now got this whole new concept of permanent town boundaries. So absolute permanent town boundaries, in which the, uh, the 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 minister of the day can't just call something in and go, I don't care what you voted on local government council, I'm going to tell you that you're going to have that development. They can't do that now because we're going to change that that root problem. It's actually a great opportunity for our community to actually have the most important say in our future that, that we've ever had. Um, it also means that we can have a conversation about all those key issues of sustainability and resilience that we otherwise couldn't have. So it's very hard to think about how we cap our carbon emissions, for instance, if there's just endless growth. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very hard for the community to say, we're gonna supply X amount of this community's um, community renewable energy if there's just ongoing endless growth. So it, it, part of Spring Creek, for instance, has got north-facing slopes. What happens if, for instance, we decided that we were going to put uh, a, a one megawatt solar farm there, on on, and that would take about two hectares of land? Okay, it would cost about two million dollars. So I'll put, just put this idea to you: there's about twenty thousand ratepayers in Torquay, Janjuk, Belbray, twenty thousand. If we each put in a hundred dollars, hundred dollars, twenty coffees. <laughs> Hundred dollars, we could have our own community renewable energy um, uh, solar farm, and in that we could actually develop a community energy garden. And an energy Hold on, would that mean we wouldn't have to pay a power bill? No, an energy garden is slightly different. In it means that um, renters and people who are, are on the socio-economic um, lower rungs. Of um, of earnings may have an opportunity to discount their energy bills, for instance. So we could do that. We're actually having those discussions now. So that's exciting. Yeah. So when you've got Spring Creek Valley, we start to think about alternative transport links. We start to think about community energy. Um, we start to think about equity for nature for um, people. And we start to think about our local economy. 
So in, in that microcosm, we're starting to address the key issues that Richard Heinberg has talked about from the Post Carbon Institute. And what's important is not that we do something great for our local community, even though that's important. What's even more important is that we create a model that other communities can replicate. Mm -hmm. So when we've got that community down in Anglesey talking about 100% renewable energy, we can actually, as a community, uh, assist them as well to actually help achieve their goal. And so across the whole of the surf coast, all of a sudden you've got a conversation that's relevant to the 21st century. Um, I, so, so can I ask this? With your, uh, with these conversations, do you find this the the Shire to be helpful? Um, the Shire is in a place now that uh, it hasn't been before because what we have is this whole conversation about permanent town boundaries. We've also, um, through Darren Cheeseman being the new local member, got a conversation about town character and a conversation about height limits, not just guidelines, but absolute height limits. Mm -hmm. So, Do we, we know what's happening with those limits, just quickly, on the heights? Uh, well, we know that we are going to have the conversation. It's a conversation that... Um, the the member uh, for um, South Barwon has committed to have, and it's up to our community to engage mm. in that conversation. So w w one of the things that we could do, for instance, is have em employ a futurist. And futurists, uh, I, I remember way back in the early 1990s being a part of a futurist conversation led by Peter Elliard. And back in that time, he would ask questions like, to the audience, he would say, okay, now, John, it's 2030, and I'm asking you, what did we do as a community that made our community uh, what we want it to be, and what didn't we do? So it would allow your imagination to run wild, if you like, and to imagine a future that you actually want rather than a future that's been delivered to you by state government or developers. And we're in that space now. We are in the space where our community can actually guide our future. And, and so if we had someone like a futurist to talk us through, we could actually do things of great consequence. And I'm excited about that about the opportunities that lie before us. And I feel we've got guidance from, you know, uh, people that are thinking on the global stage about how we act locally. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the idea of being engaged uh, with our local community, with what's happening, is just so much important, mm. is more important than ever before. Um, because the stakes are so high. Just one thing, like we're sort of getting to near the sort of timing. Yeah. But um, so we're down at Bells and we had the suits on. Yeah. Anti the oil yep. drilling. Equinor, yeah. In the bite. Yeah. Now, I think I saw somewhere the other day that they're sending people out there to 
Is that, is that right? Sending people to keep, keep going. I didn't yeah, get Yeah, I, I read an article and it was on social media immediately. Yeah. yeah. But it was a photograph of, a, uh, I think it was one of the Sydney newspapers or something yeah. that they had approved BP maybe to go down and start doing some pre-drilling tests. I, I actually don't know about that, but it doesn't surprise me just because um, we get back to this whole understanding of the global economy not just needing growth as a as a an, an a good thing it's absolutely necessary if if growth stalls in our current system we go into recession mm-hmm. so we've either got the opportunity to either um trash uh by by, by stalling the system by step stalling the global economy by trashing the system mm-hmm. Or smashing the planet—they're the two options that we've got. I can control alt delete on the on the current system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and or, and that's and that's why they're going to continue to keep Mad Max doing that. Yeah, um, totally unsustainable. Not not just because um, there could be a massive oil spill, but the whole thing about carbon emissions—that all that oil has to stay down. Um, below the seabed in order in order for us to have any chance at all of staying under two degrees so, so they, the, those oil pockets act as coolers is that right they keep us a, well a if help. if we use that oil yeah. it's putting carbon emissions up into the atmosphere that we can't afford to put up mm. so all that that remaining budget that we've got of carbon that we need yeah. Yeah. to not not um, go over we we are in danger of of going past that now. So some there's a guy called Glenn Peters who's from um, a uh, the um, an institute in Oslo, um, the Center for uh, Cicero Center for International Research on Energy and Climate Change in Oslo, and he he actually did a um, an amazing presentation in front of a group of people where he was able to show uh, in the modelling what the curve looks like um, to actually drop our emissions. Um, The later we leave it, the steeper the curve. And uh, as we're putting so much carbon up into the atmosphere now, in order to get below two degrees, we're almost kind of have to get to a cliff edge where we just go cold turkey and just stop and what he's saying pretty much what he said in that presentation was um, that it's possible to um, meet those carbon emissions in the modeling but not in reality we're addicted uh, because we're addicted and because we're leaving it so late and it's just telling us that the system's broken and the the stuff that Equinor are trying to do um, it, it's not a surprise because um, we're going to keep doubling down on trying to keep the system going, even though the system's broken. broken. Mm-hmm. And what we need to do now is actually start having a conversation about alternatives. And no one's really going to listen to those alternatives at the moment while this current system is going. But sooner or later, people are going to start searching and they're going to start looking for hang on I I heard something the other day about ecological economics 
what, what was that about again? So it, it, the, the role is to start having those conversations and the role is for local communities to start creating its own pathway that actually doesn't depend on the global economic system um, in a way that's actually going to undermine um, our, our planet's ability to survive. So that that's actually the opportunity as well. There are huge challenges, but they're the opportunities. And, and in those local conversations, that's where Torquay can lead in such an important way. And that's why I see this moment in time as particularly um, compelling, I mm. guess. Mm. Is there anything else that you want to get get out before we finish up? Yeah, well, there's look, there, there, there's another, there's probably a zillion things that I've forgotten to say, but once again, Richard Heinberg talks about this current period being something that we need to move from a con consumer society mm. to a conserver society, and it's a it's a totally different way of thinking. And there's another guy called Edward O. Wilson who's a a giant in terms of um, the environment, a, a little bit like a David Suzuki or a David Attenborough. And he's actually proposing that what we need do, to do now to conserve the remaining 80% of the planet's inventory is dedicate half of the planet to nature. Yeah. So just think about that. Mm. Um, we would save 80% of the planet's inventory if we dedicated half. So that, that immediately says we can't do infinite growth. Like, we can't. And what, what, what we could do in, say, Spring Creek, like if we can get that far, is actually maybe nominate something like Spring Creek as, in our local community, Spring Creek Half Earth Project uh, as a... Um, as, as almost a gesture to someone like um, Edward O. Wilson, who's actually putting this project up on the global community, to go, you know what, we think that's a great idea. The people here in Torquay are saying we want to follow that lead. Uh, look, I love it, but we need to stop growing. Because that's it. we're just going to be looking at that land now like, well, not us, but someone will be looking at that land with dollars. That's dollars. Yeah, and so if we're still expanding, it's it's where it's where the boundary of Duffield's Road permanent town boundary becomes so important, because if it's a permanent town boundary and the land on the other side is uh, um, listed as distinctive landscape features, which is you know where it's headed, then it also all of a sudden changes the monetary value of the land as a residential development. And that's very significant. It it means all of a sudden that um, big developers like Amex and um, Park Lee don't actually have any um, any need, let's say, to retain the land in the hope that they can um, sell it off later on as an urban development, because we'll have changed all the paradigm that that we've got permanent town boundaries around Torquay. Uh, and it won't change in 15 years because our community won't let that change. And it will require both 
um, sides of politics to sign off on, on on that change, and that won't that won't happen. And 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 the other final thing that I should say is that we're we're in this period of time now where people vicariously understand that the system is broken, and that's why you've got all. Uh, independence and and um, all these major changes across the planet with Brexit and Trump and all that stuff, they're disruptors. Mm-hmm. The independents in the Australian system are actually providing a new voice to community, the crossbenchers, and a new opportunity for local community to have a say in the bigger picture, and that's what Damien did. Damien's also going to run for the seat at Karangamite and there's this opportunity for our local communities right down through the seat at Karangamite to actually all think about our, our future and what it is that we want to do, what it is that's important to our identity, etc, etc, etc and to also um, have a strong voice uh, on that independent stage and I find that really exciting because it's an opportunity that once again has never ever presented itself Mm. Graham thank you so much I think yeah, we could probably pleasure. do another one sometime down the track. You've got, I can see you've got lots of notes there. Oh, yeah, I could, yeah, could, I could go on, but <laughs> I mean, it's it's a uh, it's a it's a huge discussion, isn't it, John? Oh, but and and a, a super important discussion, and I think the more that we can we can start to think about it and m- moderate our own lives with the care of you know thinking of of. Uh, well, nature. I had this thought as a kid. It kept popping up to me. I wrote it down a while. I might, might read it out later. But I, I was walking home one day from primary school and I thought, how many times do we, maybe if this is a reincarnate life, how many times will I live and die before we destroy the earth? And then I started thinking, well, maybe we're already doing it right now. And as the human population's growing, <laughs> this is really weird. We're killing, we're killing all these species, and they're reincarnating as humans. And it's a like a trick. <laughs> it's a nature's evil trick. The more we kill the, of the animals and the and the and the little, you know, the little bugs and beetles, and, and they come back as humans. And that's even worse. And we're our own worst enemy until we're all just humans and no bugs and everything, and we just fucking die. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the, real, the reality kind of is that we, we, we are on a trajectory to collapse and all the living planet indicators tell us that uh, and all the modelling tells us that. Um, so w- what we need to do is actually change the system to something that is sustainable and is resilient and um, provides stewardship, you know, to, thinks about the planet in, in terms of equity and, uh, you, you know, we could go on forever, yeah, yeah, but this, yeah. the, the, this whole thing about 
carbon equity, there's, there's a, a diminishing budget. And people in the developing countries often don't, most, there's over a billion people that don't have enough uh, in order to survive. And they actually do need to use that carbon to actually get something that approaches a reasonable lifestyle. Yet us, on the other hand, have got way more in, in, you know, in, in global terms than we actually need. And we're squandering that diminishing carbon budget like there's no tomorrow. And so that gets to the key question of equity. Like if we say that other people in developing countries should have better lives, why is it? that we're living such squanderous, consumer-driven lives, there's a mismatch between what we say we believe in and how we act. Mm -hmm. And that, that, that becomes important. The whole idea of um, overseas holidays even, the huge carbon budget that that requires means that those people in those other countries aren't going to have that uh, that diminishing carbon budget that they need in order to get to something that's half reasonable. So I learned a long time ago that people, what they say they believe in and then how they behave are often two vastly different things. And if you say nature's important, then what is it? in your behavior that's actually um, backing that up. And I, rem I, I, I constantly ask myself that question. It was, I, there wasn't a question that intuitively came to me. It was a question that I, I, I came to through a very good friend called Dewey Buttonshaw. He, he kind of pointed it out to me about, and he was talking about something else. But it, it, it came to me and it's never left me. It was one of those casual conversations that, um, 25 years down the track, it's still, you know, it still mm. rings true. And so I, you know, like stuff like superannuation, if you give a $100 donation to the Australian Conservation Foundation, but your superannuation of over 150000 is in some organisation that is um, getting you a fantastic deal because it creates um, nuclear arms and is clearing vast areas of forest, how does that add up? How does that make sense? So all those things... Is that what these superannuation people invest in? Well, that's what many superannuation um, uh, businesses have invested in. A lot of superannuation... Uh, there's a lot of ethical superannuation businesses now. And so I remember way back then I was actually with AMP and I read this thing in in a, in a magazine about Australian ethical investment so I just I thought wow if I don't pull my money out now out of AMP which I you know didn't have that much but I still lost a few grand which back in that time was a fair bit to me mm. if I didn't pull it out now the problem was only going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and then when it eventually became so big in my head that I had to pull out, I was, going, I was actually going to, it was going to be much harder for me to pull out of that scheme than 
than you know what what would have been previously so I just thought no do it just do it and I always try to think about that um, in terms of the really big issues with climate change it's carbon emissions it's consumption um, with uh, with with this whole idea of um, of, of growth um, and this whole idea of equity being at the top of the masthead future generations nature and people that are poorer how should I respond to that and so like I said when when you actually do that you find that all the all, all how you behave and, and and all the things that are driven in the low in the global economy they all actually become different things and it, and it doesn't mean what what we've got is a, an economy that's talking about quantity now but what we actually need to do is talk about an economy that provides quality mm. and in Bhutan, for instance, they've got the Gross Happiness Index. In, in, in the global economy, we've got Gross Domestic Product, which is all about stuff. Mm. Two vastly different things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, I think um, I've probably said way too much. <laughs> Graham, it's been great. I, I really appreciate your time. Yeah, I've, thank you for the opportunity, John. It's been interesting to... I don't know, try and get my thoughts out. And yeah, no, it's great. I think mm. you did a great job. And like you said, how, you know, this, this is a rabbit hole. You, you, you could just keep going. Yeah, 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 totally. And, and it's a conversation that is going to be so important for our community. And I'm really hoping that um, that conversation is going to happen, start in, in 2019. So it's going to be up to us to make it happen. So, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks, Graham. Okay. Yeah. Good on you, John. Cheers. Cheers. Okay, there you have it. There was my chat with Graham Stockton. Um, now, Graham has just emailed me and he wanted to let you know and me know that the figure that he gave you for um, the average American waste, he, he gave in, um, what does he say here? In our conversion today, I inadvertently gave you the figure in tons, which should have been kilograms. So uh, the average American waste stream is around 455,000 kilograms per person per year, which works out to be 455 ton. Doesn't matter. It's still a fucking shitload. 455 ton per person or 4,550, that four, no, fuck. What is that? 455,000 kilograms per person per It's a shitload. Um, I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope it's like, uh, I know it's daunting. I know it's daunting, but there are things that we can do. I, don't, I still feel a little bit at a loss about it all, but I, I don't think it's all at a loss, but I think it's time to shake down the system that, that be, you know? I hope you're having a good one out there. I hope the sun is shining, but not too hot. Not too hot. All right, until next time, my friends, arrivederci. Adios. Adios.